If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we will be considering in particular verses 67 through 75, which we didn't cover last week, but in Luke chapter 1, if you would. I have a question for you to start off with. What what would you attempt, what would you try, if fear was no factor? So if you knew that you would be successful, there's no, there's no fear of failure, you're not going to fail at it. If you knew that you would survive, so there's no there's no fear of death here, and and if you knew that you could afford it, so there's there's no fear of bankruptcy. <laughs> what would you attempt? What would you try if fear was no factor? That's something maybe you can think about over lunch this afternoon. I'll tell you what I would do. I would climb Mount Everest. Yes. I, I don't know why, but I would love to do it. But I, I'll tell you what, I, I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. Do you know why? Because I'm scared. <laughs> because I'm fearful. Because I'm afraid that I, and I'm afraid that I would die. Because it seems like one out of two people that try it get frozen on the side of the mountain, and I really have no interest in doing that. But if I, if fear was not a factor, I would, I would totally do that. You know, fear. I think. Fear can be debilitating in all areas of our lives. It can be debilitating in our walk of faith. Fear can keep us from walking in a way that we should. And I think this morning my hope is that we would see, as I've just been struck with in this passage, we would see that in the gift of salvation through Jesus, that we have been freed to serve without fear. I think the main thought that I want us to think about, we have been freed to serve the Lord without fear. We've been freed to serve the Lord without fear. Most of us probably didn't come to church today thinking fear. You know, that's really what's holding me back from living a life that's fully devoted to Christ. And that may be true, but I think it's also good for us to to stop. Sometimes we grow comfortable with the fact that we have nothing to fear in Christ. We grow comfortable with the fact that Jesus has effectively taken away all of our greatest enemies such that we have nothing to be afraid of. And my hope is this morning that we would see with fresh eyes what Jesus has done for us. The fact that he has destroyed all of our enemies so that we can be freed to serve him without fear. We looked last week at this wonderful story beginning in uh, Luke 157, the story of John's birth and of his naming and then of the loosing of Zechariah's tongue after nine months of God-ordained silence. We also looked at the second part of this song in verses 76 through 79 where, where Zechariah speaks, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about his son's role in preparing the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist's coming role. And this week we're going to consider the first half of this song, verses 68 through 75. And this is a song that, that speaks of the coming Messiah and of the salvation that he is going to bring that will lead his people into fearless serving of God. So let's read this passage together. I just want to focus on, we're going to focus on verses 68 through 75, but let's read 67 through 80. Beginning in verse 70 of Luke 1. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Verse 67 tells us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he prophesied. So this song that we have here is a God-inspired song that sprang out of these nine months of silence. In passing, I just want to say this, I just want to recognize that this song, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it it was, it was probably wasn't written just in that moment. I think rather that it was formed in the midst of this God-given silence in Zechariah's life, this time when he could not hear and when he could not speak. I just thought, you know, when was the last time that our ears were not filled with noise, when was the last time that our mouth was not filled with words? We live in a day where a moment of silence could be put on the endangered species list, couldn't it? I mean, there is always a constant buzz around us, and we've sort of lost the ability to sit in silence, to sit and to meditate on God's word, to reflect on God's activity in our lives. But I think very often it's out of silence that God blesses us with our most insightful reflections, as he did with Zechariah. And so I just think, just in passing, like I said, this is not the main point of the passage, but I would say, I would encourage you to, every once in a while, just turn off your radio. Even when you're driving to work, I always turn the radio on, but sometimes it's good just to turn it off. Spend some time in silence with the Lord. To, to pull out your earbuds, to turn off your TV, to shut down your computer, to hide your iPad or have someone hide it for you if you need that. To do that just from time to time. I'm not saying these things are evil, but from time to time. To then take up God's word, to take up time with God alone, to take a walk and to pray. And it may be that just as Zechariah had nine months of silence, that out of that sprang this song, that it could be that God will fill our hearts and our minds and our mouths with songs that we would never have come up with if we were just always filled with images and sounds and always speaking and always talking. It's hard to find silence. I know that for sure. Four little kids running around. But we should find opportunities to, to have silence and to think and to meditate on who God is and what he's done in our lives. That's a little side note. But so here Zechariah speaks, and he speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. So these are words from the Lord. We can think back to the fact that since Malachi, prophecies in many ways had, had ceased. And suddenly Zechariah comes forth with this beautiful song about who the Messiah is going to be and about the fact that he is, that he is coming soon. And as he 
says these words, I think that he knows in part what he's saying, but at the same time, he's speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is prophesying. I think Zechariah is saying things that he doesn't fully understand, that he doesn't really know the extent to which these things are going to be fulfilled or how they're going to be fulfilled. And so as we look at them, I think we need to consider Zechariah may have not known everything that we're going to say, that there are nuances, there are depths to what we're going to see in this, that maybe Zechariah didn't know when he spoke them, but as prophecy, these things became, they fulfilled. And the first thing that he does here is he praises the Lord. It says He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then he says why he is praising God. And before he ever mentions his son, his son doesn't show up until verse 76 of this song. Before that ever happens, he starts talking about the Messiah. He starts talking about who else is going to come, about this Messiah, the the deliverer who will come and rescue his people. And first he says, he, he thanks God that he has visited his people that he has visited. You'll notice that he speaks in the past tense as if these things have already happened. It's, it's still future, but Zechariah is so confident that these things are happening that he speaks as if it has already happened. He has already visited us. So this is the past tense. God has visited us. When you think about visiting uh, someone, you probably think about maybe traveling to their house, sitting down for a meal, Maybe just spending some time with them, that's what a visit is. Or maybe you think about traveling some distance to see them. Maybe for the holidays you go and visit people, or just for the fun of it you go and visit people. I think the idea here of visiting is not so much a visiting amongst equals or a casual dropping by for a meal, but rather it's this idea of God coming to offer help to those that are in need. Making an appearance to help is the idea. We said last week that one of the themes of this chapter is is the word mercy. And mercy has the idea of someone coming to people that are in despair, that are in distress, and offering help. You know, when there's a national tragedy in the United States, such as uh, most recently we had Hurricane Sandy that came through, one of the first things that we hear about on the news is what? When the president is going to make a visit. The president is going to go and he's going to visit this area. And the purpose of this presidential visit is to go as a representative of the United States government, even of the people of the United States itself, and to say, we are here to help. He's there to assess the damage and to say, what do we need to do to help this area that's been affected so badly? So they goes and he may even lend a hand get his hands dirty a little bit but usually he's assessing the needs and saying this is how we're going to help and in the similar way Zechariah prophesies that God is coming to visit his people and he's coming to visit with the goal of offering the greatest help that we need the people Zechariah was speaking to and probably even Zechariah himself probably saw their immediate need as liberation from this foreign king from the Roman powers one of the restoration of their freedom. But Jesus comes as God himself to help people who are not trapped primarily by a government, but to help people that are trapped in death and in darkness. You remember last week we saw in verse 78 that, that God was coming, and he was coming as a rising sun, the sun that rises and fills a dark valley with light. That's how God is coming. And the salvation that he's bringing is summed up in verse 79, that Jesus is coming to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. So beyond what any president does or any person could ever do, God himself comes and he is visiting us, visiting to be the means of salvation. God wasn't only coming to visit his people. What else does it say here? He has visited and he has redeemed us. So he has visited us and he has redeemed us. Redemption here, it has the idea of, of being liberated, being set free from a, an oppressive situation. That's probably the extent to which Zechariah understood the word. And, and again, surely the Jewish people were thinking about the difficult, oppressive situation they were in with Roman rule over them, that they wanted to be freed from this. They probably thought of the Messiah much like Moses, who would come and rescue them and lead them back to their prominence as a nation. But redemption here means so much more, doesn't it? We'll see even more this more clearly further down. But redemption is this New Testament, the word that the New Testament takes, and it, it's used to describe the salvation that God has brought us. Because when God visit, visits us, he visit, visits us as people who are helplessly trapped. Or trapped, you might think, in, in an iron-gated prison. The prison is the prison of our sin. We are trapped in our sin. And we're not just in prison, but we have a death sentence that hangs over us. So we're on death row. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, the penalty for our sin is death. But Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he visits us in our distress. He comes and he redeems us. He ransoms us. It's not like in the movies, though, where, they, where he blows off the doors of the prison and just kind of, we run out. The way that Jesus frees us is he redeems us, he ransoms us. In other words, he comes and he opens the, the cell and allows us to come out and then he himself goes in. And he himself is in this prison of sin. And he himself dies the death that we are supposed to die. And in doing so, he pays the price for our sin and for our penalty and he redeems us. He sets us free. This is what Galatians 3.13 makes clear. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Whether he, he knows it or his hearers know it, Zechariah was speaking about Jesus. And he was talking about this one who was coming to redeem his people and he was going to do it at the price of his blood on the cross. So the Messiah here is coming to visit his people. He's coming to redeem his people. And all of this is summed up in the, in the phrase of, of verse 69. Because in sending the Messiah to visit and to redeem us, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now that's not a phrase that we typically use, is it? It says verse 69, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. If I talked to you after the service today and you told me, Hey, you know what? I just bought a log cabin. I don't think anyone's going to say that. But if you did, you know what the first thing you need to do if you have a log cabin? The first thing you need to buy is some set of antlers. <laughs> you got to have antlers in your log cabin, right? Somewhere above the mantle place, whether it's deer antlers or moose antlers, just you got to have some kind of antlers in a log cabin. Am I right? Okay. Well, antlers in a log cabin, it's like it's like peanut butter and jelly, right? It's like potluck and rice. you got to have antlers in your log cabin. So why do people hang up antlers? Uh, why do sportsmen thrill with the thought of getting a buck rather than shooting a doe? I don't really know totally. I'm not a, 
hunter. But in part, I think some it has to do with the fact that these antlers, they're this symbol of that animal's strength. And when you hang them on the wall, you're saying, I have conquered this humongous animal. I, I won in whatever battle there was. I was probably sitting up in a tree and he couldn't get me anyways. But anyways, I have bested this beast and I have his antlers now. That, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a horn referring to like a trumpet or a shoehorn or something like that. No, Zechariah is talking about a horn of salvation, meaning the horn of an animal. And the horn of an animal is a symbol of exceptional power and strength. This is what would have been used in that day. This is what they had to think about as far as strength. The horn is, is the symbol of an ox or a bull's strength. Think about a big bull or a big ox with, with just huge horns coming out. That's the symbol of that animal's strength. So when we talk about a horn of salvation, it's to talk about power and strength. This, this mighty salvation that is, that is coming it says that the strong salvation, he says, it's coming out of the house of of David. So this salvation is a fulfillment of the promise made to David in Second Samuel, the promise that David's throne would last forever and that a king would come from David. We all know about the, the root that's going to come from the stump of Jesse. You remember that in Isaiah? But there's another prophecy in Psalm 132.17 where God says concerning Jerusalem, he says, in Jerusalem there I will make a horn sprout. For David, this idea of a horn coming that that is a symbol of strength and of power. We see later on that this salvation, it's not only promised in the Davidic Davidic covenant, but it's in the prophets. He says um, that we should, verse, uh, verse 70, I'm sorry, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So these prophets had spoke that someone was going to come. And what's he going to do? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So this this horn, this mighty horn of salvation is coming to destroy enemies. It's this offensive weapon whereby the the animal can can kill its prey. And so this horn in the house of David is coming, as the prophet said, to destroy the enemies. Now, again, I think in this context, the Jewish people probably would have thought about Rome, they probably would have thought about the fact that they felt captive in their own land, that they, their freedom was squelched, that that was their greatest enemy. They would have thought of freedom in social or political terms. And they would have seen this coming Messiah. They would have said, yeah, bring a big horn and we're going to destroy all our enemies. Let's just wipe them out. But they're going to slowly see that that's not what Jesus came to do. So this salvation is a fulfillment of the promised King David. We see that verse 60, um, 69. It's the fulfillment of the prophets of old, 70 to 71. And then it's the fulfillment of the words that have been spoken to Abraham. It says verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. If you were reading through our Bible plan, you read in Genesis 12 yesterday, the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, it goes on in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, speaking of Isaac, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And then this, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So this fulfillment, the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham is coming, not only the blessing of all people, but also that you will possess the gate of your enemies. All the enemies will be wiped out. So King David is coming, the, the one from the line of David, this ruler who will reign like David did, and all enemies will be destroyed. This one that the prophets spoke of who's going to come, and we will be saved from all our enemies and all those who hate us. And then this, the fulfillment of the words to Abraham that we will possess the gate of our enemies. This is the one who's coming. This is the Messiah. He's coming to destroy all enemies. The deliverance that God's people are going to have, this, this Messiah is about to be born. The seed of Abraham is here. The promised one of David is here. But again, he's not coming like everyone would expect. He's not coming to be placed on an earthly throne like David was. He's not coming to usurp Caesar. He's going to tell Pilate later on, he's going to say, My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise we'd fight. My kingdom is different. His throne and his rule are not of this world. He's coming not to deliver his children from political power or human oppression, but he's coming to deliver his children. He's coming to deliver us from our greatest enemies. What's our greatest enemies? What's the greatest thing against us? There's a few words I'd probably use. In First in John, he talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. That These are the enemies that we fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We wrestle against things that, are, that we do not see. The world, this world system, we, we wrestle against that. We wrestle against our own flesh. This is an enemy of our souls. We, we fight against the devil. That's the perfect description of those who hate us. Who hates us? The devil hates us. Who wants to destroy us. So if I think about our greatest enemies, I think about that. But I think even more than that, I think about sin. Our greatest enemy is sin. And what's the result of sin? All sin leads to death. Those are our greatest enemies. Sin and death. And it's in this way that Jesus is coming to reign. That he's coming to kill all his enemies. He's coming to bless us with the fulfillment of our greatest need. What is our greatest need? It's what we saw yet last week. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of our sins. John was coming to reveal what God was going to do. John was the forerunner. He's going to tell us about the salvation. What's the salvation that Jesus is bringing? That he's going to wipe out all the earthly powers that want to suppress us? No. He's going to bring us forgiveness of sins. Because the greatest enemy of our souls is unforgiven sin. Because our sin reveals our rebellion against God. and makes us guilty of eternal death. And we are lost if we do not have forgiveness of sins. Any message of salvation, any, any gospel, anyone who comes to you and says, I'm going to give you the good news of what Jesus has done. And if they start telling you a good news that does not have the forgiveness of sins at the forefront, then you can tell them, that's not my greatest enemy. That's not the thing that's going to kill me in the end. They can come and they can tell you that, that Jesus came to save you from all your sicknesses. But they've removed the truth that you are dead in your sins. I don't care if Jesus can save me from all of my sickness if I'm dead in my sin. That's what I need salvation from. People will come and they will tell you that Jesus will save you from all your financial enemies but they neglect to tell you that you are morally bankrupt before God, that you have no righteousness. And if you die in that way, 
that you are lost forever. I think we should be aware of a gospel that exalts social and political freedom above freedom from sin. We have to watch that in the land of the free. We have to be careful that we don't exalt that above freedom from sin. That is what we are saved from. That is what Jesus has come to save us from. And if we lose other freedom, if we are free from our sins, then let everything else go. Jesus will come. He will reign fully and finally, but it's not now. Right now, what has Jesus promised us? He's promised us persecution. He's promised us pain. He's promised us that if we're going to follow him, everyone killed him because of what he said, and we say, oh yeah, we follow him, then what's going to happen to us? We'll face persecution. We will face pain. But we know that he will preserve our lives even in death. So Jesus, the Messiah that Zechariah is speaking about, even though he doesn't fully know what he's saying, Jesus has come. He's visited us to help us. He has redeemed us. He's brought us back. God has sent him as this mighty horn of salvation in fulfillment of his word, and he's come to destroy our greatest enemies. And the result of all of this is what we said at the beginning, what we want to drive towards. It's this. We have been free to serve the Lord without fear. You and I, if we are in Christ, have been free to serve the Lord without any fear. That's I think the flow of this passage goes like that. Just walk with me, verse 68. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed us, and he's raised up this horn of salvation, as he promised to David, as he promised by the prophets, verse 70, as he promised to Abraham that he's going to deliver us from all our enemies, verse 74, that, because, so that, the reason that he's done it is that having been delivered from the hand of all our enemies, we might serve him without fear. Why has God saved us from all our enemies? So that we can serve him without fear. If God's mighty salvation is so strong, if the horn of our salvation is so strong that it frees us from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from unforgiven sin, and from death, then what else is there to fear? Is there anything else to be afraid of? What, what can any of our earthly enemies do to us? The worst thing that they can do to us is kill us. But we have nothing to fear in that, right? Because, remember this from last night, hopefully you've been thinking about it all week long, for none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And what's our only hope in life and death? We have ultimate hope in life or death because we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. A reading from 1 John 4 made this clear. Why do we have nothing to fear? 1 John 4 says, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. We have confidence in the day of judgment. If you die right now and you face the judge of all the earth, you can face him with confidence. Why? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out Fear. So why are we not afraid? Because perfect love casts out fear. What does fear have to do with? For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So fear has to do with punishment. But perfect love, the love of Christ, comes and it casts out all fear. You, we have nothing to be afraid of. We can stand before the judge of all the earth and not be afraid. Why? Because we're holy? No. Because Jesus has come and destroyed all of our enemies. 
so the fear of death is gone. 1 Corinthians 15 says that, doesn't it? It says that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is gone. We have nothing left to fear. Can I share with you a silly illustration? I was hoping Elaine would be here this morning because she would relate to this one. Maybe Hannah will like it. Maybe some of the others will. It, it, do you guys watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer every Christmas? The claymation one has it? No, don't watch that. It's okay to admit it. Okay, we do at our house. And the story is there's, there's Rudolph, and then he kind of runs away with Hermie, who's the dentist. He wants to be a dentist, he's, but he's an elf. He doesn't want to make toys. He wants to be a dentist. And they meet up with a guy named Yukon Cornelius. Does anyone know this? No? Oh, you have all been deprived. Thank you, Rebecca, for nodding. So Yukon Cornelius and, and, and Hermie and, and Rudolph, their greatest enemy is the bumble. The bumble is this um, abominable snowman that's out there, and he's looking for them, and he's trying to, and you hear him uh, growling all the time when they're running away. And there's this scene where they're in the cave, and the bumble has come to get them, and they are, it, it's all over for Rudolph and his friends. But suddenly Hermie, the man training to be a dentist, somehow gets on the bumble's head, and they go off to the side, and do you know how they finally defeat the bumble? Hermie the dentist, what, what would a dentist do to defeat the bumble? He pulls out all his teeth. <laughs> and so the bumble walks into the cave, and he's growling, but he has no teeth. And so no one is scared of him anymore. Why? Because he, he can't hurt them anymore. That's a really silly illustration, isn't it? I mean, that's like the ultimate low that I've gone through there. But that's what I think about, I guess. I don't know. But, but in a sense, this is, in a, in a much greater sense, Jesus has come and he's, he's taken all the teeth out of our enemies. We have nothing to fear. It's like going to the zoo and you walk up to the, li the edge of the lion pit and I'm not scared. And sometimes they're growling, they're roaring. But I'm not scared. Why? Because this is a big chasm. I'm not scared anymore. I have respect for that lion, but I'm not scared of him. All of our enemies have been defeated. Jesus has defeated all of our enemies so that we can serve him without fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. We still, we still fear God. We have a respect for God and all of him because he is the one to whom we will give an account. He is the one who can cast body and soul into hell, but we don't fear the one that can just kill us. Romans 8 builds this up to this crescendo that basically says we have nothing to fear. Let me just read these familiar words to us, but think about the fact that Jesus has destroyed all enemies. Do you have anything to fear? No. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God, God's elect? The answer is, no one. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's get a list here and think about it. Can any of these things separate us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything left to fear? No. If God is for us, then nothing in the world can be against us. And if he has united himself to us, then nothing will separate us from him. What an amazing thing. And what, what's even more amazing than all of this is that in rescuing us from our greatest enemy, from unforgiven sin and from death, Jesus makes all other enemies against us nothing. Any earthly enemy that we have is nothing because Jesus has dealt with our final enemy. What's the worst thing that someone can do to you? They can kill you. And to live is Christ and what is dying? That's gain. So we serve without fear. We have nothing left to fear. Now I focused a lot on that, which will be to the neglect of the other two parts of this. But he says that we serve without fear. He says also that we serve in holiness and righteousness. Briefly, I would just say that this we, we have no fear because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that we stand before God. When we stand before the judge of the earth, we are not afraid. Why? Because we have Christ's righteousness. We don't, we're not found in our filthy, sin-stained clothes, but we are found in the righteousness of Christ. And then out of that, we live holy and righteous lives. We live, li- live lives that fear nothing because we think, well, what's the world, the flesh, or the devil going to do to me? They're already defeated by Christ. I have nothing left to fear. And then it says all our days that we would serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The kingdom that God, that Jesus comes to establish in the line of David is an everlasting kingdom. It's a kingdom that will last for all eternity. It's not just an earthly kingdom. And the kingdom... Uh, it's a kingdom that will never be destroyed or taken over by a false leader. And when we are adopted as God's children, we're made joint heirs. So we serve him all our days. Even after death, we continue to serve. So Jesus has visited us in his mercy. He's come. He's visited us to help. He has redeemed us. He's done it through his blood. He has sent this powerful horn of salvation to kill all of our greatest enemies, to to destroy the world, the flesh, the devil, to kill unforgiven sin and death itself. And so now we're able to serve the Lord, and we can do it without fear. We can do it in holiness and righteousness that he will provide all our days. The reality is you cannot defeat your greatest enemies on your own. So I would say if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Christ, then you have much to fear. That's a scary place to be. Because all of these things are not defeated. Your greatest enemies still have power over you. The world, the flesh, the devil, unforgiven sin and death. If we stood before God right now apart from Christ, then there is much to fear. So I would say repent. Repent of sin, put your faith in Christ and what we do, then we have nothing to fear. But if we have placed our hope in Christ alone, we've repented of our sins, how should we live? We should live as those without fear, with nothing to fear. What's that going to look like? I don't really know. (laughs) As I was contemplating that, what does it look like to serve the Lord without fear? The best description I could think of would be the disciples. And the disciples after the resurrection. They were scared, weren't they? I mean, when when Judas 
comes in the garden and they capture Jesus, what do the disciples do? They take off. And Peter's so scared that he denies Jesus three times. I mean, they are scared out of their minds. And, and when they hear that he's risen from the dead, do they believe it? No. Right off the bat, they don't believe what's going on. They are scared to death. Then suddenly Jesus comes into the room. And he eats fish in front of them to say, yes, I truly am resurrected. And suddenly the cowering disciples have nothing to fear. They wait in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes on them. And they go out in the midst of this place that's totally hostile to them and they preach the gospel without fear. And they get beaten and persecuted because of naming the name of Christ. And what do they do? They rejoice. And, and then Stephen stands up in front of all of these people and preaches one of the toughest messages you will ever hear. He sounds like John the Baptist calling people brood of vipers. He, he just stands up there and says, you all killed Jesus. And he does it without fear, and he's killed, and he, and he lifts up his hands and asks Christ to receive him. And then all throughout the, the book of Acts, we just watch the church grow, and you see Paul, he says, I don't count my life worth anything. If only I can fulfill the task that God has given me. These are men and women who had absolutely no fear. So they walked into persecution, they walked into hardship, they walked into situations where people might be hostile to the gospel, and they just spoke the truth, because there was nothing to fear. I think if we could wrap our minds around this, that Jesus has come as the horn of salvation, and he has killed all of our enemies, that we have nothing left to fear. If we could grasp that, what would that look like in our lives to serve the Lord without fear? I think it would look like like Acts, and I think God would do amazing things amongst us. So, praise God. He has visited us. He has redeemed us. He has raised up a horn of salvation, just as he told David, just as he told the prophets, just as he told Abraham. And Jesus has come, and he has killed all of our greatest enemies. He has killed the world, the flesh, the devil. He has dealt with unforgiven sin by dying on the cross for us. And he has dealt with death by raising again and giving us new life. And so he says, now serve me without fear in holiness and righteousness all your days. Let's pray together. Father God, let these things sink down into us and change us. I don't know totally what this looks like in our lives, Lord, but if you you say that we are renewed, we are changed by the renewing of our minds. So renew our minds with these truths. Look, I know I just, we take it for granted so often that, that you have rescued us from our greatest enemies. So help us to see that clearly this morning. But as we think on it, that we would say, if that's true, then we have nothing to fear. So we're going to serve you without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days with a boldness like our forefathers. But change us through your word, not through anything I say, God. If I've said anything that's out of line, please remove it from our minds. But what is true, let it let it change us. Lord, relieve us from any fear. I pray for any in this room who do not know you, who would stand before you scared, Rightfully so. Let us pray that they would see their sin 
that they would look to Christ and find salvation in him. Thank you for your marvelous grace, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.